Hey everybody, this is Adam Levenberg. Welcome to the official screenwriting podcast. I am here yet again with the lovely and talented Jeff Sussman. Uh, thank you, sir. Yeah, I'm back. It's good, good to be back again. It's good to have you. Jeff and I did podcasts on the finales of Breaking Bad and Dexter, which for some people who automatically download it, I don't know that all those people got the Dexter episode. So if you happen to be a Dexter fan, two episodes back, we did an entire hour on Dexter. Uh, and there's some new Breaking Bad news, which I know seems impossible for, <laughs> but, but this is actually an interesting piece of business news uh, that Jeffrey Katzenberg, who runs, uh, I think he's running DreamWorks uh, Animation, and uh, he was going to, they've been buying uh, different companies actually to do online content, and he was actually going to offer, or he did offer, he claims, $75 million for three extra episodes of Breaking Bad. Of course, he was not aware of where the finale was going, uh, but he offered $75 million, and the idea was going to be that they only had to make three more episodes, but that they were going to break them down to like six-minute pieces and sell those pieces at 50 to $0.99 cents a piece. And of course, I think we're all very glad that he didn't actually, or that the Breaking Bad crew didn't go through with it, because it would have represented more money than they had made over the entire length of the series. You know what? I couldn't even, I wasn't even patient enough for regular commercial breaks. You're going to take away my Breaking Bad every six minutes. I'm going to, it's, that's not a good way to, you can't watch that show. It's a perfect way to make money though, because you just keep putting keep the putting, coins in like, the machine. Like a you slot know? machine. Yeah. Give me, give me here a click, fifty cents more. Just give me, give me more. Yeah, exactly. And every, and I have to sit through a little thirty second commercial, and I can't skip this ad either. Absolutely. So th this week we're going to be talking about gravity. We're going to hold off on that for a little bit because for those of you who have not seen it yet, you don't want to listen to the gravity part of the podcast until you've actually seen the film. It's kind of like somebody ruining or t spending a lot of time analyzing Titanic or Forrest Gump or one of these great sort of film experiences that everybody goes to see. And I think that this film is going to be that. So just a heads up in a little bit, when we talk about gravity, you're going to want to, uh, you know, check out for a little bit until you've actually seen the film. But I do want to talk real quickly about something that I found to be incredibly helpful. You know, you, you guys know that I run a screenwriting class. Uh, I've done three rounds of it, six weeks. And in this last class, we experimented with something where I gave a really random assignment, which was I sent the class a YouTube clip of a scene from a movie and had them write it to see a little bit about their style, to see what they were doing on the page, because most of these students were just working on treatments and ideas. And the week-to-week -week improvement was stunning. The improvement just by giving these writers a little bit of feedback, working on somebody else's scene so that they didn't have to sort of bring everything in their own stories to the table. And it gave them an opportunity to really show off what they were capable of doing in different genres also for them to learn, you know, action and comedy writing and what pieces of information on the screen are really important and need to be talked about and which ones don't. So Jeff, for the first time, I'm actually offering a one-on-one, -on -one, uh, process or a class that because people said to me oh can you do a class that will be online where people could just watch and I couldn't do that I couldn't think of anything that I thought would be valuable this I know is valuable and I know that I can work with people one-on-one -on -one. so it's four weeks and each week I give you an assignment I give you a scene to work on I look at that and then we talk a little bit about you know the projects you're working on maybe I'll assign a movie uh, readings or a book for you to read and you can talk to me about it the next week as well as we'll go over the assignment are so you are you still doing the thing where you sleep over at the person's house <laughs> who writes the best uh, scene 
<laughs> I, you ruined it. That was going to be the Hanukkah contest. Because I <laughs> honestly, the students say they would take the class again based on the pancakes you make when you come over. I've I've heard they're very good. I haven't eaten a pancake in nine months. But you cook them for the for the student who has the best. Absolutely, best absolutely. Real maple syrup. Don't don't eat that junk. There's no reason anybody needs to be eating that junk with corn syrup. You know, that's true. In fact, uh, did you see the informant? Yes. Yeah. If you, if you're interested in corn, it's about the, the evil corn industry. That's a that's a good movie. But it's go on. You're Moving saying. on. Um, a reminder that Ender's Game the movie is coming out November first, I think. And if you have any opportunity to read the book until that point, I highly, highly recommend it. Otherwise, this great, great book that was going to make an awesome movie, and it was a teenager that would make an awesome movie. Everybody knew it would make an awesome movie. Warner Brothers tried for a long time to get a script that uh, Scott Card would ap- approve. And I believe that that never happened. And for whatever reason, it just happened at the right time because the visual effects they can do today really would have been cheesy, I think, 20 years ago. Um, So you have a couple of weeks left to read the book before the movie blows your mind or at least changes your conception of what the book is. Because, Jeff, I don't know if you agree with me on this. Once you've seen a movie, even if you if you read the book after, which I think is generally a good idea. I think it's generally a good idea to see the movie because then the book is like a much more in-depth experience. It's almost like a director's cut or, you know, you see the differences, but it also goes about 10 times deeper than what a movie is. But in this case, I'm saying read the book first because you'll never be able to go back to the book and sort of imagine your own battle room. So you said in this case, and that would be, that'd be my reaction to that. There actually are some times where you, if you go one way or the other, you are going to lose something. For instance, I thought Jaws was a good read as a book, and I had seen the movie a hundred times growing up, and I finally, around when I was like 15 maybe, I finally got around to reading Peter Benchley's Jaws. It's not exactly like the movie. It's still a great book. It didn't make me appreciate the movie less, but when you think about The Shining, anyone who read The Shining before seeing the movie doesn't like the movie or doesn't generally care for the movie. In my experience, people that I meet say that the book... They adored it, and it was great, and then the, the movie is such a departure. Sure, you know. and by the way, on the note of The Shining, I know that both of us, I just saw Room 237. I know that you said you'd seen it also. Yeah, I did, the documentary. We're not going to get into it, but maybe next week I will speak at length about what's so wrong with that movie. It's visually, You want to tell them what, what 237 is? Room 237 is a documentary that is about The Shining and the theories that have spawned from some very, very invested fans of the film, people who've watched it a million times, knowing that Stanley Kubrick is a master and has every little piece of visual information uh, under his thumb as a filmmaker. So they've done some really, they do a lot of theorizing about this film. It pulls together a range of theories, and but what they all share in common is suggesting that The Shining wasn't made to tell the story of The Shining, the movie. It was, it was, it was a vehicle to tell other stories. Of all different kinds. So but it's that's, like, which, that's which was his agenda? Or was it multiple agendas at once? And was he simultaneously trying to tell a story? You know, I agree. I agreed with what you, you didn't, you didn't love that documentary. I actually, I thought it was visually fascinating. Um, or actually not fascinating because it uses this. It's most of the time you're looking at Stanley Kubrick's film just being talked about. Um, but, 
the people who were doing the talking were fucking morons. They were real <laughs> idiots. And for every interesting idea that they put forward, if they spoke for another 45 seconds, they would show that they really didn't know what they how to how to dissect a movie or what the intentions of a filmmaker could be or you know, I've I have a degree in critical studies from USC. Until watching Room 237, I really never thought anything of it. I thought it was kind of a bullshit degree, and I thought that <laughs> it wasn't, you know, it sounds good, but it isn't necessarily anything that um, that that brought any sort of knowledge or abilities to me. And I know now that that's not true, because these morons that they have talking over this film um, show that they just don't understand film criticism at all. And I think there's a really good reason that they don't tell you who these people are. They're basically anonymous. And they're just fans who have way too much time on their hands and have occasionally found really interesting tidbits and things that Stanley Kubrick left behind in the film. And some of their theories even work on some level. Um, there's definitely some intention there with Kubrick to do some of these things. And there's a really interesting theory that's put out there that we won't go into because it would be a little bit of a spoiler. But um, the, the film itself is it wastes its time with people as opposed to sort of getting more into what Stanley Kubrick actually intended and the people who what the people who worked with him said about the process of making the film and what he said that he wanted and all of the information that's been left behind about and his inter I mean he talked about it so to to go and sort of have these wild theories and believe them um to me sort of steps into a level of that's nice that these people are doing this. I just don't give a fuck and I don't want to listen to them talking about it anymore. Yeah. They, they maybe didn't pull it together. Well, let me ask you this to re relevant to Ender's game then, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're talking about a book by Stephen King who was insanely popular and the shining got read widely. And then the movie was made what five, 10 years after the movie, after the book came out. And I mean, not that long. My point being, is Ender's Game a famous enough book in, to begin with? Hasn't it been long enough that what is the real audience to disappoint out there? How how big is the, the fanship of this book? The or? book has sold millions of copies. Is there a huge potential to disappoint with this film? Yeah. Isn't it an old enough property that's been such a long time fans coming? Fans will always find a way to be disappointed. Yeah, I'll be, I'll, but yeah. it, it seems to me from <laughs> the that. from the trailer that I just saw that... They have stayed faithful enough. They are they are giving clues to the audience. You know, if you've read the book, they actually telegraph a lot more in the trailer than maybe what other people would interpret. Um, meaning that they sort of walk you through the story in a way that I don't think people who haven't read the book would be able to understand, oh, they're giving this away, or here's what they did with that idea. That's how you make um, a fan trailer. And I, I think that... From what I've seen, it's sort of like Lord of the Rings-ish where you have somebody succeeding on whatever level it is of bringing this world to life. You have top acting talent um, and, the, and, and Gavin Hood is, you know, a very, very talented director and writer. Um, so I, I think that there's... It's been long enough that the fans of this book also have gotten older. Um, you know, th this book has been around since 1984 five in various forms uh so i think people are just ready for the movie 
<laughs> I know you are. I, I, I'm, I am for. excited. I have never been a person who says I need to get to a film or need to see it the opening night or need to, you know, like if I'm excited for a movie, I'll see it opening weekend. But this is one of those movies where I've waited now for like 15 years. I will not wait one minute more. I will have tickets to the first show. And uh, you finally see the midnight appeal. Finally, I mean, I think the people Batman who do it do it, do it a little you. bit too often. No, I wasn't running to Batman at midnight. But they do it too often. Huh? What do you mean too often? I, look, if you're getting that excited about movies that often, then clearly not it's not like a hugely special no, occasion. It's three or four times a year. Okay. But it is a fun thing to go at midnight. I, Where's your joy? It's not about the joy. It's about it's, it's about getting the tired. Joy. It's about the bite-sized I'm, almond joy. I know that I know that I will get tired around like one forty-five a.m. Well, that. And, but is but just I think you. That, hold on, no. But the studios have have answered that. Because they don't make people wait for midnight. They want that midnight money. They don't want people to wait. So we now have 10 p.m. showings, now even 8 p.m. showings of films. Uh, and now that's a big deal about the, where you find out on Friday what Thursday night's box office was. And that's a really good indication as to how big a big movie is going to be. Well, fair enough, I guess. I mean, it, you know, it's kind of cheating to say it's part of the first, the opening weekend. It is. Just bring it out Monday night and call it, call it <laughs> opening weekend. Well, they have that sometimes when Christmas Day is on a Monday. You have films opening Monday. This opening weekend started two Thursdays ago. It's the biggest <laughs> opening weekend. <laughs> All right. So we're going to move on to Gravity. Uh, it was just okay. No, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Gravity is awesome. It's really an experience. It is. I, we got to see it at IMAX. IMAX 3D. And it did fill up. It, Yeah, I was, it was having a little argument about how early to show up, and we found that 8.45 for a 9.30 show. And you want to be, talk about how that the, specifically the 3D tickets took up such a large percentage? I mean, it's a first, right? It's really... uh, Warner Brothers knew, this is kind of interesting, Warner Brothers knew that ever since, well, look, ever since Avatar 3D has been dropping off because you have a lot of films that were not filmed in 3D, being put into 3D. Audience members became just very price conscious um, more than anything. And the result of that is that by the time that Pirates of the Caribbean came out, they were down, Pirates of the Caribbean 4, they were down to, I think, about 60% on that, or maybe it was like 50-50, or maybe that was the first time that uh, maybe that was the first time the 2D ticket sales outpaced 3D ticket sales. I'm forgetting the history on that. But um, what you found is a c continual decline to the point where with Iron Man 3, I think it was 60-40. 60 60% uh, 60 of the tickets were in 3D. Or, I'm sorry, in 2D, meaning that audiences just don't want to pay for it anymore. But what Warner Brothers did was really smart. They said, okay, if given the opportunity, audiences will... Um, choose the 2D at this point, but this film, it's really important to see in 3D because it's filmed and created in 3D. I mean, it's almost an animated movie. So, And it was the best 3D film I've ever seen. Yeah, so what they did was they put nearly over 90% of the uh, screens were in 3D. They didn't give viewers everywhere the option of well, doing they, 2D. Because treat 3D like that if they still want the ticket sales, They should, and they should be willing to, to fund 3D productions and back them and... and really advocate them being shot and properly it, done in 3D. It depends how many visual effects there are. And for a film like Gravity, it makes sense because it's an animated film. He took basically animation software and recreated it for the first time with human beings and live, you know, motion cameras. So let's underline, you you do, you do have to see it in 3D. And I wouldn't wait to see it on video. Everybody did see it in 3D. It sold 87% well, of its it. tickets in 3D this weekend. You must go to the theater and that, that event... If, for all the reasons a movie like this is important, and there are several, um, it 
it begs to be seen in the theater. And it, you're missing out if you don't go see this in the theater. And how many movies can you say that about? There was Jurassic Park. Yeah, my brother, who's not completely up on this stuff, I said, okay, you have to go see Gravity. He goes, okay, I'll download it. He's going to watch like, it no. in low res on his laptop. This yeah, is not the one. I, that's what I explained. That this is the movie. This is, this is your the dollars go to the movies. Exactly. And it's well it's well spent money. Like know? there's no, And he's like, but I have a really big TV. And it's like, no, 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 no. no, no. no. For the, I get it, though, with the big TV. And for a lot of movies, great. A lot of people think like my home theater is better than a movie theater. And that's true a lot of the time. I mean, there's nothing wrong with people's home theaters. But uh, uh, some of them are extremely impressive. And you're, you'll have a kick-ass viewing experience on a home theater. But you will not that's like or, or the way the dark knight rises or any of the batman trilogy wow but, it didn't take you long to get there did well, it? well he shot with imax cameras i'm not gonna detour i'm just gonna say <laughs> there's a it gives you a reason to go right it gives you a reason to go see it there in, on a 70 mil projector on a huge screen sure sure you'll enjoy the movie later you'll enjoy gravity if you see it on video but you you gotta go Unless you have balance issues and or uh, you get dizzy. Oh, because, and, and that's not just because of the visuals. The sound design of that movie contributes to the sense of vertigo. And, Do you know I didn't even think about the sound while I was oh, watching Oh, I was listening. It? The sound mixing is incredible. I mean, the, the, surround, the way that the ambient noise is surrounding you in the auditorium contributes to this feeling. I mean, the act, the, some, at some points the actors are spinning one way and then the sound is spinning another way. And it really gives you that feeling of... At some points, you it feels a little weightless. I mean, the, the first ten minutes, you're you're pretty much breathless the whole time. But the first ten minutes is all one shot, and it's just. I think it's thirteen minutes. That opening it shot. I mean, it's incredible, incredible. So, we thought it was okay, <laughs> but we're, it, the story's by the numbers. The script is effective, and, and but story wise, I would, I would argue with that a little bit. It's easy to look at a, a script like Gravity and, or to, to look at the film and say, oh, well, it was fun to watch, but the script wasn't anything impressive. And I think that anybody who knows screenwriting can appreciate a couple of things that we're going to talk about today, um, which are that first off, let's talk theme, because a lot of times themes in movies are not incredibly clear. And for anybody who's read Blake Snyder's book, Save the Cat Goes to the Movies, they know that sometimes the theme is kind of a throwaway. The theme here actually misled me. And I want to remind anybody still listening, we're going to talk some spoilers. But uh, the theme of the film, George Clooney uh, literally says, you need need to to learn to let go. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's so on the nose and it actually doesn't, it comes far later than 12 minutes into the movie, uh, which, you know, would sort of, or I'm sorry, five minutes into the movie, which is where Blake Snyder usually suggests that that goes, but that's fine because as long as the film knows where it's going and as long as it sets up all these issues, especially about Sandra Bullock and her daughter, um, then, you know, I thought that the theme let go meant that she was going to die. I thought that it was about her making peace with death. But the more that I learned about the character, the more that I realized she doesn't really have anything to live for. And therefore, we need to go the other way. I wasn't totally clear on where the film was going, though, because I hadn't watched a trailer for this film and I didn't read the script. So I knew about her losing contact momentarily, which happens, I think, 12 or 13 minutes into the movie uh, where she becomes detached. Um, I knew about that. And that's all I knew. I actually didn't know what was going to happen after that. So I didn't was, either. They did a good job of, you know, 
keeping it kind of mysterious the, well, the plot because not that much there's not that much plot well it's it's there isn't a film like this is very a to b to c to d it's to like e. swinging from vine to vine your, li- your life is your her, it, her life is on the line at every at every turn yes which which is why this film is so great because it constantly puts her into the middle of a problem and the problems are huge of course but what's so cool about it is that at every turn, there's another problem. And that's what you want to do. That's pure screenwriting. You have a character who's dealing with something, and then they have to deal with something something else, and then they have to deal with something else, and they're going to let us catch our breath for a second, and then it starts again. Because, And you know that's why people call the film Relentless. Because it is constantly giving her, and I think the best example, and we're, again, spoiler alert, uh, at the end of the film, she crashes down, she survived. She's re-entered the atmosphere. She survives the the crash. So that's two things that she's now survived. And then water starts pouring into the capsule, and she nearly drowns. And then she gets out of the capsule. And is she gonna? Is she? You know, she's already been holding her breath. Is she gonna make it up? Is she gonna be able to swim up? Oh fuck! Her co- her astronaut suit is holding her down, and now she's got to get out of her astronaut costume. I mean, it's just one thing after another for ninety minutes. And uh, that was something that I think represents some of the purest screenwriting that we've seen. Yeah, that ending the, when she's going through the atmosphere is super intense. I have to see it again. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely... It was almost like it was so intense I couldn't even absorb it all while I was watching it. It was like, I'm going to have to watch it again. I mean, I loved it, but thinking back on it, I was like, wow, some of those scenes. Uh, they skipped over a lot of, you know... Some astronauts came forward actually and said how complimented on how detailed it was. Others immediately noticed... Well, so, the thing science that, I noticed, that was skipped. I did say the 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 fact that um the fact that she could stand up and walk is not something that an astronaut would actually be able to do. Yeah, and you're not the first person I heard say that. The first layman. Astronauts have that. to be carried out of the capsules because their bone density has they could break bones and stuff like that. On top of the fact, I think their strength, muscle strength, just isn't there. The brain sort of isn't connected to the body in the same way after being well, also weightless for that long. I want, what are the rules in terms of how much can you fudge science? Is it just about how many? There are the, no rules. How many of the average? There are no rules. Let me tell you, there's a thousand things that would get any person killed in real life. I mean, well, I was just going to say, in for reality, instance, they established that in zero G, an object set in motion will just keep going forever. I mean, they established that with the debris. Mm-hmm. It's not going to slow down. It's going to keep going and it will inevitably hit you, blah, blah, blah. So... I, and this is one of the astronauts that I was reading some one of his tweets. He was basically, you know, bashing the movie from a scientific standpoint. And the most, some of them are just like, "Come on, guy, like relax." Like he was pointing out that the communication satellites were down at two hundred at two hundred miles, and then the space stations were at three hundred and fifty miles. So there's no way that it would have been down if they had. You know, he was saying stuff like that, which didn't particularly interest me. He did say one thing though, and this is an inciting moment in the movie when uh, Clooney decides to let himself go and 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 die to save her life because she, he's going to get pulled away and pull her off of the tether. Which by the way, I just want to point out, hold on. Can I just point out why I like that moment? The reason I like that moment is because it's so immediate. He's watching it. She's unraveling. He's got seconds to go before this thing unravels as the result of his weight pulling at her. Uh, well, I guess you don't have weight there, but for the that momentum was the point that I was just about to okay. say that he said that I found most interesting out of all the things he bashed it for that I could have overlooked. This one is what made me raise my eyebrows. They'd already established that once an object is set in motion, it'll continue. This guy pointed out that just a tug towards him, towards her, and he would have floated towards her. She would have just had to go boop, oh. and he would have just slowly just 
he unhooks and then just drifts away when he would have unhooked. And if he didn't move, he would have just sat, sat right there. He wasn't spinning. Oh. So he wouldn't have kept spinning. He already stopped. He would have just been sit. Well, what you're saying she is just there's no way the, that the... If you tug, if you tap something lightly, it'll go on forever and not stop. So if she had just, boop, tugged him towards her and then five minutes later... Congratulations, Jeff. You just destroyed the no, film he for myself that. and the audience. Well, I don't think anybody that. can enjoy gravity now. This I only Adam thought Levenberg. that... It's been a good <laughs> I only talk. thought that stood out because it's such a big moment, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that was why I've detoured your show for a second there to point out, okay, fine, they can fudge science sometimes, but when it... Well, you're fudging science all the time. You're making it up. There's no, I mean, she performs so like a video game character in this film, the way that she climbs all over those into and out of and around spaceships. Yeah, I mean, pretty awesome. It's fucking awesome. When but she's it's got one arm hanging onto the latch and it blows open. She, <laughs> she hangs on. That doesn't break her arm. Yeah. Um, so that's the answer to your question, Jeff. You do not have to be scientifically accurate at all. There is no at science all, department apparently. at any studio actively working to prevent even things big, that couldn't exist in reality from making their way to the screen. That, even at the most <laughs> crucial moments like that. Yeah. True. So. Um, so the character, I, we talked a little bit about how when she is put in the situation with George Clooney. We see the tethers around her feet unraveling, and that's why he detaches from her. And that's sort of the immediacy of all the problems she is given. That's the other thing that I, I was sort of struck by. You know, when they give her oxygen levels, I was like, wait a minute, she's only at 8%, and now she's drifting through space? How do we do a movie now? Um, and and it sort of creates this intensity that again, the word relentless seems to be used a lot with critics. You know, she's at 2% oxygen and they're still a ways away from the capsule that they're going to. And then she's at 0% oxygen. And if you look, they just keep giving her these problems and making them so immediate uh, that it it creates this dread that almost, you know, if she had been at like 18% or 22% and okay, my oxygen's going down, but it's not that, it's I'm out of oxygen. We're minutes away from this thing. And you're going to give her problems in between. I knew the whole capsule. It couldn't have been just oxygen till the end. And then the last 10 minutes out of oxygen, it couldn't just be an oxygen story. No, I I love, I I loved it too. I wasn't suggesting that. What I was suggesting was that by putting her at zero, it creates no, I get it. an insanely tense uh, situation. I no, I get it. It got there so quickly, and it, I was like, well, I agree. It was. Obviously- I knew that the volume was sort of turned up on this movie, though. When when I saw that, and I was like, well, you, she's, she's supposedly got no oxygen left in the suit, which George Clooney then says, hey, you have some left inside of the suit. Um, but even with that, I was like, wow, he's just, he's making this really ugly for the audience in a way that only a master could because anybody else would have said, well, let's continue to sort of just have her level dropping, which would have been another choice, by the way. We could have seen 18%, 17%. I just said that. That would have been not nearly as effective to just make it an oxygen dropping off story where you have, no matter what. I I wouldn't use the word story there. It's not because that's only a small segment of the. Yeah, but you know what I mean. You can relax. As long as she has oxygen, you can relax. I mean, through all the foibles, if we keep referring back to the oxygen, it's really just about whatever happens to her. She's still got oxygen. Yeah. You know? Um, All is lost in Dark Knight of the Soul. I want to talk about this a little bit because, A, and I want somebody to, I want people to write in. This film embraces the surreal in the exact same way that Life of Pi does, at the exact same point that Life of Pi does. And that was the point in Life of Pi where I was like, okay, we're not really in reality anymore. And that was what happened in this film where we have George Clooney 
Uh, we the, the all is lost moment is that she decides I'm dead. I'm going to be floating out here. She turns off her oxygen and sort of goes to sleep. And then we have the knock on the window and it's George Clooney smiling and he pops into the thing and he gives her the idea as to how she can move this capsule that is not prepared for re-entry, how she can use it to get herself closer to another space station that, that does have a capsule on it that she can use. Um, and there's remember that, you know, we have All is Lost, usually page 75, followed by The Dark Knight of the Soul, 75 to 85. And, and again, in this film, those numbers would have come earlier because it's only a 90-minute movie as opposed to those numbers that I just threw out being based on a 110-page script. But the cool thing about this Dark Knight of the Soul is that it actually fulfills two of the three ways that I'm aware of out of the Dark Knight of the Soul, which are a lucky break, a new piece of evidence falls into, in this case, her lap, or a pep talk from an unlikely source. And it's actually two of those. It's new piece of evidence falls into her lap um, that recalls information that she's already put out there. She's already said, it's already been established that she's failed at the uh, controlling whatever the re-entry capsule thing is. So when it comes time to do this, it speaks to her education in that process. She goes, yeah, I learned how to do it and I crashed it. Well, she still learned enough to be able to figure out how to use the thrusters for re-entry or whatever in order to you know move the ship in space. And um, so that's the new piece of evidence and the pep talk from the unlikely source where he doesn't just give her that piece of information, which is really coming from inside of her own brain. But it's, um, he talks to her a little bit about her daughter. And that's that reminder that, you know, she, about her, her daughter's storyline where he, he touches on that. Is that a religious, I mean, you know, there was a big Messiah thing in Children of Men. And, you know, is that a Quaran choice for, I mean, he wrote the script, right? With his brother? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, or his son, I think. Well, yeah. So is that um, is that a religious? Because think about it. If it came from within her, and that ultimately is what gave her the inspiration to go on and finish the job. Fuck if I know. She found it. From I, I, I have no idea if that's a religious issue or not. Came um, to her in a dream, kind of thing. I wonder if that's biblical. One of your listeners. Can I don't. Write, I don't think no. It, it, it's not. It, I mean, it has nothing to do with the Bible, unless somebody can come up with some sort of parallel Bible story. It's about the character being able to access a piece of her education along the way that we've established that she had. Cause she says, I learned how to do that. Mel Gibson, I, Mel Gibson can do it. What, what do you mean by that? You said if somebody could come up with a biblical, <laughs> <laughs> very possibly. Um, but that's, that's the, you know, sort of the, in the death throes characters it, at, after all is lost during the dark night of the soul characters will often have some sort of breakthrough that they, or something that they've learned in the past now comes into a new light. It never and feels like 10 pages. You know, Dark Knight of the Soul often is not 10 pages of the script. It's, it's an interesting thing that a lot of times it's cut short. Um, it can be really short. It can be depending on the film. Um, Cause all is lost. You know, there's, I, I got into this chicken or egg thing with the writer um, who's trying to figure the same question out, you know, does, is all is lost a moment or is the dark night of the soul? And you know, the idea is that most of these things happen uh, in a 10 page space. So this film, um, you know, again, it, it certainly brings the theme out late, but it's, it also does it very on the nose. Um, we talked about the constant problems. We talked about her constantly being under the gun uh, and behind on time, which is really important for your character. 
Uh, and again, if anybody has any other film examples or story examples, because Life of Pi, of course, was a book before it was a movie, um, it's it's very interesting to me that there's also this very surreal experience after the all is lost point that the character has that, I mean, I knew watching it that we were no longer in life. I knew that George Clooney was not, it wasn't a goofy enough movie that George Clooney was going to pop in, you know, back to life. That was and, so well done because he kind of like smiles and knocks he, on the window. Yeah, it's and, fun. It got a big laugh. Yeah. Um, but personally, I knew that, I, I thought like, okay, is this where the film's going? Are we going to explore death like this? And it had a much more positive outcome that I was happy to see. I think everybody, I don't know, maybe I'm giving the rest of the audience too much credit, but I, th- th- that laugh to me didn't signify ignorance that he actually wasn't there. I got this feeling that most people kind of got it that that he wasn't. He couldn't I really would there. disagree with that because there was a palpable, not a palpable, an audible um, reaction when it turned out that she was still dead. You heard people, people talking stupid. That was that, right. That's okay. Right because the that, that, that's it. your audience. And by the way, um, I wasn't clear, you know, I wasn't clear. Was she in heaven? Was she dead? Was she dying? Was she, there's, there's actually a lot of options there. So I wasn't clear where they were going with it and where they were going <laughs> to lead us. Were we going to continue sort of on this path? Um, to to death with her with Clooney was he going was she going to get to do something to leave her daughter behind or no um, because as soon as he started talking about that I was like okay he's he's heading in for a landing here and he's gonna you know we're gonna head back uh, to reality um, soon enough but yeah uh, if anybody has any other references or literary references uh, please let me know because you know email me. And people can also email me if they're interested in doing that four-week course with me where I'm going to spend 20 to 30 minutes on the phone with you. You're going to do an assignment. We'll talk about the assignment. And I'll give you some other homework to do over the week. So, like, you can read a book maybe that you haven't read before on screenwriting. And then if you have questions about it, we can talk. And I I think that that's sort of the best way that I can work one-on-one with people who maybe haven't written a screenplay yet other than the concept consultations ready where people bring me their treatments and for 99 bucks I look at it and talk to them for an hour. This is a way to sort of, again, from the people that I was working with in my class, some of whom had already taken a six-week class with me, I'd just never seen this level of improvement on the actual pages of the writing. And that's why I'm offering it to the podcast audience now. So that is all for this week. Uh, Jeff, thank you for being here. Yeah, no problem, man. You guys can follow me at SusMe. Check out my podcast. I do a superhero movie podcast if you don't know by now the bat signal yeah it's you know fun little podcast you easily digestible just listen to it while you're digesting i think that's what people do they listen to podcasts just while you're hanging out (laughs) just thinking about batman or the superhero movie universe and there's always lots going on i know that's how i spend my weekends so it's at susme s-u-s-s-m-e or follow us at bat signal show we got an episode coming out uh this week, I'm going to have Adam on too a lot. If you I'm like gonna Adam, be, I'm going to be talking on that podcast and talking about the more business elements of uh, the superhero film world. Yeah, you know, we geek out and we hypothesize and theorize, and Adam gets annoyed and rolls his eyes because he has another perspective. I always have a, I always have a huge smile on my face. Yeah, well, you know, it'll be good. It'll be good. Thanks for having me, though. I appreciate it, man. Glad to it's have good you to be here. All right, that's all for this week. Maybe next week. I, th- I feel like we already talked about Room Two Three Seven. I said we weren't going to talk about it, and then I just. I shit all over it anyway, so maybe I've, maybe I've made my point on that film and it's not worth any more discussion. Tweet, if anyone writes to your tweets at you, you can revisit it. Do you know what I suggested? You know, there's such an interesting idea in Room 237. We can come back to it for one second. Um, there's such an interesting idea. I suggested it's like the Golden Girls episode where Rose 
is a reporter because in sitcoms sometimes they'll give characters a job that they don't really have just for like an episode so she's a reporter and she goes to this <laughs> dog show to report on the dog show but a hostage situation breaks out like an armed you know hostage situation breaks out so you know what rose does she crawls under the table and reports on the dog show because she's there to get her story and that's what real reporters do (laughs) and that movie reminded me of that where there were so many interesting roads they could have gone down with completely legitimate ideas and they happen upon some really uh, fun theories and they never investigate them they just let the person talk about them for a little bit use the film as evidence show you what they're talking about and move on to the next person who's probably an idiot well yeah, I mean, probably, but you know, I, that it is fun. To, you know, you sometimes there's a variety of ways you can go. And- no, because the film goes nowhere, and here's why: it doesn't. You know, we've talked. We're friends with a guy named John Foy, who's made an amazing film called Resurrect Dead, which is on Netflix streaming, and that's that's actually one of the top streamed uh, documentaries on Netflix. John Foy. Yeah, um, but the the problem with Room Two Three Seven is. It gives you these people and it just, it's one idea after another idea after another idea. And these people just keep talking and keep giving you their ideas. But again, they're completely anonymous. We never see their faces. We don't know who they are, what their background is. They're just detached voices over images from the film, which look great. By the way, there's a lot of great animation in it. Um, It looks like a real professional documentary. And then it's just endless speculation from idiots. And it's one after another after another after another. And I think they might be using the same people because there's no, at the end I was looking and I was like, wait a minute. I thought I just read 10 different theories on The Shining, but I think that maybe they were, I couldn't even tell. So I you, think that's problematic. So I think what you're trying to say here is that you preferred that particular episode of Golden Girls over Room 237. Uh, Did I just sum up your, I just took away your closer. That was what you were getting at, right? No, I was suggesting that the, did you miss the metaphor for the, what I was saying about the Golden Girls? That it is like two. No, 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 no. The, the, the idea, (laughs) I'm going to explain the metaphor because I don't have anything better to do right now. The metaphor was that Rose goes to the dog show, but something so much bigger comes up. So she says, I'm going to cover that and I'm going to cover this little miniature thing instead. Congratulate. You just crashed the only website hosting Golden Girls reruns (laughs) right now. You just, right now, the the, did you understand the webmaster I, did you understand of, of goldengirls.com is going, what the hell are we? No, but the, the, idea, right the idea is that in this movie, they come up with some really mind-blowing shit. They uncover some mind-blowing stuff, and they do nothing with it. They do no investigation. They stay down the path of letting idiots talk about The Shining. Completely. And that's not what a good documentary filmmaker does. A great do- Any great documentary, you'll know the filmmakers allowed them the world to tell this story, and a smart documentary filmmaker gets on that wave. Yeah, and-, and Room 237 is the opposite of that. Whereas, say, Capturing the Freedmans, you know, it was a documentary about they were doing it about like a party clown like a a kid's birthday party clown and then it turned out that this birthday party clown's family got roped into this huge child molestation scandal and the cameras were already there so they were capable of sort of going inside of this family that was under attack um starting off so on a very really different have to idea. get lucky to i mean you have to get lucky no you just have to follow the most interesting elements of what it is that you're doing as a documentary yeah, but filmmaker it doesn't always end up be, being a documentary you know i mean well you then hit, then hit a wall you know you can't write it they didn't hit a wall they came up with something really really fucking interesting no, and in that case they did it. in that case they did i'm just saying that's why it's kind of the opposite of what you teach you teach it you know the discipline of building a script and 
Yes, you you don't find a story the way that you, a documentary filmmaker, would... um, That's all I was saying. ...would capture it. Although, a smart documentary filmmaker is then going to uh, use film techniques in order to create the feeling of a movie based on the footage that they've gotten. So you'll hit all is lost. Like, that's really important for people who edit documentaries to know sort of structurally about cinema so that they can then create a documentary that doesn't necessarily just rely on real life, but that will use the beats of screenwriting and of, of film editing in order to uh, create the feeling of a movie, which is, I know, maybe speak, it might sound like I'm speaking out of both ends of my mouth, but they're... I get it. No, uh, I get it. Awesome. Well, I was trying to say goodbye. We've already we've already done that. You already said goodbye. But I then did. You, Golden Girls just it got you back. Yeah, and Room 237. Uh, you know what? Don't watch Room 237. Go watch 227. That was a good show. Or Golden Girls. You could do that too. Watch 187 with Samuel <laughs> Jackson. What? And then Seven. That was a really good movie. Or it was a really interesting movie. Kevin Reynolds directed it, who did Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And he's doing a very tiny film. So he just pulls every visual trick in the book where it's just ridiculous to look at because you, you have very real world gritty situations and he's just having fun with every particular setup that he has in a way that just, it, again, it's, I, I'd have to watch it again. It would either be ridiculous or fucking awesome. And maybe a little bit of both because you, you know, you kind of have to go for it. And he did in that movie. It's always nice to be able to appreciate a piece on different levels. That movie didn't even make the top 10 opening weekend. Can you believe it? It was I, really powerful. I, I actually saw it in theater. I remember, I don't remember anything about it, but I do remember kind of liking it. Anyway. All right. <laughs> <laughs> That's all for this week. I'm Adam Levenberg, and uh, hopefully next week we'll have a show for you. That'd be great. Awesome. Right. Later, man.